You're listening to The Outspoken Bible, a podcast from Scottish Bible Society with Fiona Stewart, Neil Glover and Jen Robertson. Well, hello and welcome to season three of The Outspoken Bible. I'm Fiona Stewart and as usual, I'm joined by Jen Robertson and Neil Glover. Hello to you both. Hello. Great to be here. Now, Neil and Jen, I'm about to ask you uh, what your highlight of the last month has been. So as I'm springing on you, I'm going to give you a little while to think about it. I'm being kind at the start of this season. Um, But I thought whilst you're thinking, I might tell you what one of mine was, (laughs) (laughs) which links to somebody on this call. So last Sunday, I was on the motorway. I was driving to my parents in Edinburgh and I thought I'll listen to a podcast while I'm doing that. And I quite often listen to, well, we've talked about this before, to Kermode and Mayo's film review, Wittertainment. Neil and I are both keen listeners to that. And as I was just past Heart Hill, actually, suddenly (laughs) there was an email read out from a listener from Clergy Corner, Reverend Neil Glover. I almost, I actually almost nearly you know, crash the car. <laughs> he did. He, he sent me a badly spelt text, which I hope he didn't compose. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't use my fingers. I, I dictated it from the car, which all always right. means the spelling and grammar goes all over the place. <laughs> it was really brilliant. And so basically, there was a five-minute conversation on a you know nationally renowned, award-winning podcast um, about an email you had sent Neil into yeah. the program about a funeral that you had conducted and about a lady who loved horror films. Yeah, this is a lady called Marion Campbell who there are. There are many ladies like Marion Campbell in our churches and and all of us listening will know people like Marion Campbell. She was just, I hate, I'm using the phrase a wee old lady. She was a wee old lady. She was probably about five foot two and she was lovely. And she came to church and she always was immaculate. And through her life, she'd been a nursery teacher, a Sunday school teacher. She was one person when you visited her, she was incredibly kind and, and hopeful. And in the last weeks of her life, when she knew she was dying, she lived with enormous grace and her family loved her. And she was a wonderful woman. And I discovered when preparing the funeral tribute, I asked the family the question, what uh, films or TV was marrying into it, and they replied she loved horror movies <laughs> and I was really really surprised by that in fact I spoke to one of our daughter-in-law yesterday she said the more injuries the gorier the better as far as Marion was concerned <laughs> and and yeah and you then at her funeral quoted Mark Kermode yeah right? so I, I I I broke off script and I said to the folks in the funeral I said this is surprising, but if you if you know the movie critic Mark Kermode, he says that people who are into horror movies, either making them or watching them, are the nicest people. And it's something to do with having a place to go with the darkness in yourself. It's a thing we've touched on when mm-hmm. we've looked at the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said this, and people kind of nodded, and then we moved on to say goodbye to her. But I, I said this in the email to Kermode and me, and they were lovely about it. They yeah. were really, really touched by it, which was, which I think Mark Kermode said, you know, this was often a, a trite piece of wisdom that he came out of. That was his words. And he said it meant so much to him that it had been used on the occasion of a funeral service. Yes. yes. I, th- I mean, I thought it was it was a lovely discussion, actually, aside from my slight starstruckness that you <laughs> managed to get your, radio, your uh, email read out. <laughs> you know, I thought the discussion was, was a really, it was a really quite profound one, actually. Yeah, they are And, and a great. good five minutes worth of, of oh, chat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. they take it. And it mm-hmm. meant so much to the family. They've, I've spoken to the family since, and they've sent it all round, it, the copies of the recording all to each other, and they're really, really <laughs> chuffed with it. That's brilliant. Well, so it, it's a slightly... Um, a neat way of, of also talking about something we've talked about, which is that we would love to have a bit more engagement with people who are listening. Mm. And we've had that in the past. A few folk have, have emailed in. Um, we've set up an email address so you can contact us at outspoken 
at scottishbiblesociety.org or you can still do it by going on to scottishbiblesociety.org forward slash resources forward slash the outspoken bible and on there there's a contact form so either through that contact which of form, those is the easiest which is the <laughs> easiest i think outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org <laughs> is easier um please do get in touch with us uh, particularly as we go into what we're going to be discussing in in the next few weeks and months it would be great to hear how people are getting on with with listening what's helpful other questions other comments other things that people are objecting to are there favorite film stories that you want to share with us there is nothing <laughs> off limits. <laughs> Don't send your email to Kermode and Mail. Send your email to us. That's right. And then what we'll do is we'll tag them. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and the listenership. That's how they'll, it works. they'll be on their podcast going, can't believe it, we got a mention on Outspoken Bible. So you've both had a bit of time to think about it. Jen, what what you've been doing for the last month? What's been your highlight? What's been good? Well, interesting, before I talk about my highlight, I had a message from my son in Bolivia to tell me about Neil's... Uh, Contribution to Kerbo Demille. Oh, really? Yes. So a wor- worldwide experience. Yeah, exactly. My highlight really is being being in holiday. I was in, in Fife, uh, the East Nuka Fife, for two weeks. And it just confirmed to me that holidays are holidays wherever you go, whether you stay at home or whether you go abroad. And so I, I've always been slightly upset about the word staycation. People yes. can challenge mm. me in that. Uh, but a holiday is a time to stop and rest and... Uh, think about stuff and not do the things you normally do and I just love to walk in various bits of the coastal path and then realizing we'd walk too far and having to get the 95 bus back to Pitt and Wheem. so but it was a great fortnight really lovely lots of good. sunshine and sea and chat and nice food good that sounds great that sounds great Neil what's been your highlight aside from your fame <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> paddleboarding on the River Tay with my Ooh. friend Tom uh, who lives here in Aberfeldy and uh, we've been learning how to, get, as you probably know, if you go down a river, a lot of it's about trying to manage how you get in and out of the current into eddies. And uh, you can have lots of fun doing that. And me and Tom have had lots of fun on the paddleboard learning how to do it. Um, and what's been wonderful for him is he is, his life is canoes. He teaches canoe coaching. But the paddleboard has made, her, made him a beginner again. And he's loved it. And it's lovely to see his joy at learning new skills uh, so yeah, that's been my highlight. Has been paddleboarding down the River Tay with Tom. Oh, fantastic! Sounds fantastic. I love when people are willing to do that to try new things. I think. Yeah, yeah, and it's he, actually he's a really healthy it. thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I'm allowed another highlight, because although driving the M8 and listening to you, you know, <laughs> is up there, I went on a boat trip off Ullapool. I was on holiday in Ullapool with my parents, which was in itself a lovely thing because they had not been away um, since the pandemic started. Uh, but we went on a boat trip off uh, up Loch Broom um, up to the Summer Isles and we saw dolphins and Aww. we saw, we apparently saw a whale. I didn't personally see the whale. I didn't look up at the right moment, but um yeah it was amazing it was just amazing wow. yeah, we yeah. saw dolphins in the firth of fourth as well fantastic walking from st monans to pit and Wien. they 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 were dolphins were walking from st- oh no they were no well, i was walking <laughs> but they were sk- they were swimming along beside us it was the last oh. night it was beautiful gorgeous what, gorgeous what are the summer islands again they are just north of ullapool so kind of on the way out to lewis and harris are they the ones like egg and summer muck? And, no, they're the no, small isles. No, that's they? the small isles. So the summer isles, they're they're much. They are they are small though. They're they're, they're and there are lots of them. I can't remember how many there are. Um, Is that somebody, like priest somebody island could write and, it and, tell us how many. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Pardon? Priest island and horse island and all that stuff. No, 
No, yes, yes, it is. No, that's yeah. right. They did talk about Horse Island because, yeah, that was. I would say that. I mean, I'm not. I'm not doing a promotion here, but the guy who did the boat trip was brilliant. He mm-hmm. it was a whole thing, and Horse Island was one of the. And there's lots of stories about how the islands got their names because they're not. They're not enormous islands. They're, yeah, they're, yeah, um, pretty small. I but, love that uh, stories oh, islands. Mm, it's yeah. really beautiful. So here we are, refreshed and back. Um, we're launching a new season today, so we've got an introduction to the series. Now we've called it. Let me see if I can get this right. Rebuilding from the rubble. Reminders of return, recovery and reimagination. And what we're going to do is over the next few months, we're going to discuss the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. We're going to look at these books. So that's books of history and books of prophecy. And they chronicle the return of the people of God after the exile to Babylon. Now, what I'd like us to do in this episode chaps is we're going to just do a bit of an overview i think talk about actually why does any of this ancient history really matter to 21st century disciples um, and i'd love us to talk really about how, how those books that we're, we're going to be looking at how they fit together with one another as well however before we launch into any of that we did have a little post-season production debrief last week and one of the things i said to you both was how are you doing with your segments are you are you fed up with it are you feeling trapped are you running out of ideas and and i was basically shouted down by the pair of you saying no i really we really love doing our segments so without further ado it is time for the return of glovers off glovers off this week is about the mountain shahalian has anybody have any of you been up shahalian before no no one of the most famous is that in the north where is it north west it's just north of me i mean if i probably can see it from my garden if i get out the go to the right window i think i'll probably see it from sam's room i think yeah so it's uh it's it's just on the edge of glen lion near between tummel and the tea valley and the tummel valley and the thing about shahalian is that it's very famous in science now this goes back to uh, the late 1600s 1684 i think where isaac newton had come up with this theory of gravity and famously gravity said that when you dropped an apple to the ground not just did the apple move to the earth but very 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 slightly the earth was also pulled up to the apple but it's such a small movement you can't ever see it and so isaac newton had had shown gravity was a good explanation for the planets but no one had actually got it to work on earth now a guy called revel neville masculine said well clearly an apple is not big enough to to be able to see the earth move but but maybe maybe a mountain if you could look at a mountain in the right way and neville masculine had an idea the reverend neville masculine that's who i'm going to come to in a minute he had an idea that if you had just found the right mountain then you might be able to watch it pull a plumb line just sideways and uh, he sent a guy called Mason, who came, had earlier come up with the Mason-Dixon line in the States, to go and find the perfect mountain. So uh, all over 1773, he went all over Britain, which is quite an undertaking, to find the perfect mountain, which had to be by itself, steep-sided and regularly shaped. And great was his delight. You know, it sounds like the wise men reaching Bethlehem. Um, great was his delight when he came upon Shahalian, the perfect mountain, symmetrical, steep-sided, not many hills beside it. So he hurries back down to London, says to Reverend Neville Masculine, astronomer Roll, think I've found it, Shahalian. Problem is it's miles away and the weather's terrible. Um, they tried and paid a, a mason to do it. He said, no, I'm not doing it. They offered him a guinea a day. He said, no chance. Who do you think I am? <laughs> so Masculine himself went up and did it. So in 1774, they built two observatories uh, on the north and south of Shahalian. 
And for the whole of that summer, in terrible weather conditions, uh, Maskelyne himself went to the North Observatory and he took something like 169 measurements of 70 different stars and he watched where this plumb line was in relation to these stars. And then he went to the other side of the mountain and he did the same again. Very, very precise measurements of where this plumb line was with the stars. And what he realised was that the plumb line on the north and the plumb line on the, the south was out. They were, they were different from each other by 54 arc seconds. Now, just to, just to show you how small that is, a degree, we all know that there's 360 degrees in a circle. You can divide a degree into 60ths, tiny, and that is an arc minute. And you can further divide an arc minute into 60ths again, and that's called an arc second. And there were 54 arc seconds <laughs> of a difference between the plumb line on one side and one another. Gosh. Now, what he then had to do was take into account the, the curvature of the Earth. And there were 42 arc seconds between the north and the south. So that lets you see how tiny an arc second is. So he extracts the 42 from the 54 and he ends up with the magic number 11.6. And he can use that number. He then the next summer sends another guy up, um, up the mountain um, whose name was Hutton. And he put a thousand points all over Shahali and measured them all. It took the, the complication, the calculations were so complicated, it took him two years to do the maths. He also joined these thousand points with lines of equal height, which meant he invented the contour line. And in 1776 and 7, I think, they announced that the density of the Earth was nine fifths the density of Shahalian using these calculations. And that allowed them to calculate the weight of the Earth, and that allowed them to calculate the weight of the Sun. And it was all done in Shahalian in, in between 1773 and 1777. And in doing so, the Reverend Nestle, Neville Maskelyne uh, proved the gravitational theory of the theologian Isaac Newton. And it was all done in Shahalian. And what I love about that was the care that these people took. I love that they all saw it as part of their faith uh, to understand the workings and wisdom of God. And incidentally, they also, to do the measurements, they used a chain called, I think it was called the Gunther chain, which was named after the Reverend Gunther. So even the chain was come up with by a minister. And these people used Shehalian to measure the weight of the earth and further explore the grandeur of God. So Shehalian is my Glover's off for this week. Oh, that's that's extraordinary. I feel like I'm going to have to go and listen to that, Neil, about five times to get my head around, <laughs> my head around the physics. <laughs> when I used to preach in Canvas Lang, the, the best source of um, sermon feedback often came from the, the, the church minibus on the way home. And occasionally a guy called Will, who drove the bus, would phone me up and say, Neil, the feedback this week, too much science. <laughs> <laughs> they probably said that about the reverend... Neville Masculine. Neville Masculine as well. <laughs> Too much science. That is fascinating. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, yeah, makes me think about all the the way we separate out faith and science. Yeah, yeah, and it's all together. In our current situation, yeah. and actually it's all together. Yeah, It's all exactly. one, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. That was a, a lovely Glover's Off, and I'm glad we're keeping that segment. Uh, now, we're <laughs> we're going to move on. The pressure's on if we have a rubbish one. <laughs> we chopped. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to our main section um now I, I don't know about you Jen you and I were kind of talking before we we started so I don't know if you you feel the same as I do but but I personally I'll, I'll confess I feel 
quite befuddled by this section of the Old Testament, if I'm honest. I think the last time when we were talking about Joseph, you know, I'm in my comfort zone when it's the Genesis history, when you move into um, the stories, you know, David and Solomon and, and, and Ruth and so on. I can follow that. I can keep that in my head. I've got quite a, a clear sense of, of where the story is going with all that. Once we get into the divided kingdoms and the prophetic books, I, I have to say I get quite lost. I think I, I don't think I've ever had a solid understanding of where the prophetic books fit with the history. So I'm coming at this thinking, oh, where do, where are we historically when we, we look at Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophetic books that we're talking about? Jen? <laughs> my, my silence reflects my befuddledness. Um, I've spent the last, this this week, re- reading all four, is it four or five? Four, five. Four, of the fa- four of five books that we're going to be looking at. And I'm looking forward to when we just look at a few chapters and we can talk about them in detail. But yes, yeah, the same as you, Fiona. I, I love narrative. I love story. But I know I need to read these. And and I think, I know I've got my Jen's gems. So this is a different kind of gem. But, but in amongst the befuddledness was just, was where beautiful moments as I read these books. I do hope that I'll be more appreciative of them as I understand them more and uh, yeah, we we I know the importance of working how all this fits together. So I'm hoping I'm really hoping Neil will help me. And I do think that, but that honesty is, and I'm going to talk about this later on in the James James. But that honesty is is needed when we come to the Bible. Now, I think as a younger person, I often thought that everybody else knew exactly what was going on, yeah. and I was just sitting there confused. When really, if I just said I was confused, maybe other people would have said that too. So we shouldn't have to confess our confusion. We should just be able to say, "I'm confused. Help me understand, and let's understand together." Yes, that's great. Um, I am. We are going to go over to Shahalian Man in a minute, but <laughs> <laughs> just two very ba- not well, not very basic resources, but two just you know entry level resources that I think are really helpful. One is is the Bible Project, which we've talked about before. I certainly found to get that kind of big sweep yeah. thing. Bible Project is good. Um, uh, they've got uh, breakdowns of of books. I, and there's a lovely moment in one of the Bible Projects. I think it might be. It's Zephaniah when they do the overview for that, and the guy just says, "This is really weird." Like, this is he just he says, "This is really weird." He still does try and explain it, but again, that honesty. Yeah, exactly. so Zephaniah three seventeen. That's the verse you always get. I will quiet you with his love. It's like, phew, we can use Zephaniah. I know. I know. Exactly. Get a wee bit from there for Zephaniah. Yeah. So, so Bible project worth having a look at if if people are are kind of want to get their heads around this. The other book I picked off my shelf is by um, somebody known to us actually. It is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Bible by Colin Sinclair. Is a Church Scotland minister. But has a great love of Colin does have a great love of numbers actually, <laughs> like you, Neil. Um, and so he has he has a great little book called uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Bible, which is a go to for me if I'm trying to get my head around where stories fit together. Um, and yeah, lots of facts in there. Yeah, no, it is Zechariah, not it's Zephaniah. I can't we even like remember to say. The, I can't we even remember the names. That's how confused I am. Really, <laughs> can you remember your your twelve minor prophets in order? I no. I no, I try to. Occasionally sorry, I just shut it. that down there. Didn't sorry. <laughs> That's my reaction. Like, why would I even want to do that? Because first rule of improvisation: don't close it down. When you when you're looking them up, it's you, you always get mixed up with oh, my I cards. I know, and, and actually, it does it does play into this conversation because I actually find that with Nehemiah and Ezra, I'm never quite sure where they you know where to find them. I yeah. always have to do a bit of flicking to find them. Mm. Same with Esther, and at yeah. some point yeah. we might talk about Esther because Esther fits with all of this as well. Yeah. Um. Anyway, Neil, help. <laughs> Give us an overview. I'm going to try. 
we're in the bit of Matthew's, you know, the genealogy at the start of Matthew, the fortitude generations to get you to Jesus. The first uh, 14 were, were great. That's the story of Abraham through to David. Fantastic. The next part, David through to the end of exile, we, we're or to the start of exile, the kings, kind of okay with that. Um, it's the it's the last third that gets you to Jesus in Matthew's gospel. We read all these characters. We don't even know most of them, apart from maybe Zerubbabel. That's kind of it. We're in this kind of confused, indistinct, slightly anonymous period in in biblical history. Um, it is covered by various Jewish and intertestamental books, but not really in our Christian Bible. And that's the bit that we're in, the bit where the names don't make sense. It's all a bit muddled. And I think the first thing to acknowledge is God's in that place. There's lots of false starts that happen here, for example. So we're in the 14 generations. God's in the meh, the muddle, what's going on? Here's where I think we might be. And it gets confusing as well because the, the dates all go down because they're BC or BCE. Yes. 597. Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem first time, takes off everything in the Bible, eh, the temple. 12 years later, or 11 years later, 586, Nebuchadnezzar attacks a second time because Zedekiah, the puppet king, has rebelled. And that's the second attack. So that's a total exile. That's devastation. We might be coming back to that later on the worst has happened now jeremiah has made a prophecy the land is going to rest for 70 years but then there will be restoration now here's where the confusion happens the restoration doesn't seem to happen after 70 years it happens in the year 538 most people think which is the first year of the rule of cyrus you can come back to the 70 years. I think Colin Sinclair has an explanation for that, although I'm not totally convinced by Colin's explanation. <laughs> it's um, to do with 50 years away, but there was 20 years before that. Is, yeah, is yeah. So yeah. something like that. Anyway, most people think that Cyrus decrees a return. So the interesting thing about Cyrus is, unlike the Babylonians who are up for destroying the peoples, Cyrus seems to be up for validating the different peoples in the empire. He seems to be of the view that to get empire to work, you're going to have to have a looser alliance. It's not that everybody has to become Babylonian. You let people be themselves. And as long as they behave themselves, he'll be okay with that. And that, I think, is largely behind the largely positive portrayal of Cyrus in all of these passages. Five, there is an archaeological piece of corroboration for this. It's famous. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's in the British Museum. I've seen and it. it. What's that? I've seen it. Have you seen it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and it, it talks stuff. about a validating people. Now, it's not proof of this, but it, it, it's certainly sympathetic. 538, that happens. The people return, and that's in the beginning of Ezra. They start to try and rebuild the temple, but it doesn't go particularly well. So in the year 520, Haggai appears, the prophet, and reinvigorates the people to rebuild the temple. And in the year 516, the temple is rededicated. We then have round about 58 years of silence, which is quite a long time, but it's only a verse in the, in the biblical story. And at that point, Ezra returns. Sorry, can I just throw in, is that where Esther appears? We think, yeah, it must be. Colin thinks that, doesn't he? Colin Sinclair. That's <laughs> what Colin becoming thinks. Becoming the guru for everything. <laughs> yeah, defer to Colin. Yeah. Um, so there's a 58-year gap, and then Ezra himself comes in the year 458, Um and then in the year 445, Nehemiah comes. And there are various bits where Ezra and Nehemiah do things together. And then the book of Nehemiah ends with Nehemiah himself. So you have Ezra by himself, then Nehemiah by himself, then a bit of joint activity, and then Nehemiah by himself again. And that's the two books 
the two books were originally one scroll. The Christian Bible separated them, but it, they were Ezra and Nehemiah. So that's a muddled history. It takes place over about 150 years between the exile in 597 and uh, Nehemiah's return in 445. And what about Zechariah? What about... Oh, Zechariah's around about the same time as Haggai, isn't he? I, d I should have added that. I think he must be around about 520 yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. So so we read the, these these three prophet books alongside this history yeah. to make sense of yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I, I think the key, one of the key themes is that in the mess and muddle, God is still at work. And the, the absolute miracle that restarts all of this is Cyrus, after the 70 years, telling the people to go back home. So after the utter devastation of, of um, exile, Cyrus appears and says, you can go back. And the prophecy is fulfilled. And that's the main theological point. And amongst all these machinations of empire, the words of the prophet Jeremiah will still come true. You have a future. And this, this goes into a, a big point in Jewish thinking that says, if you have a future, you're alive. If you don't have a future, you're dead. And this equation between having a future and being alive is, is right at the heart of these books because these people suddenly discover, we thought we were dead, we thought it had all ended, and then suddenly Cyrus makes his decree, we have a future, we're alive again, we can start to tell our story. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So many things to, to pick up on, on that. Thank you, by the way, for that. That was extremely helpful. I hope uh, it was. <laughs> um, we've already, we've, we've kind of alluded to this a little bit already. I'd, let, I'd like to talk a little bit about cherry picking. So Ezra and Nehemiah, you already said, you know, we, we, the, the Christian Bible, we, we, we separate those out. But I, I think we're a bit guilty of teaching Nehemiah and never really referring much to Ezra. So I'm kind of intrigued by why we do that. Jen, you alluded to this as well, that as you read through, there were verses that kind of gave you hope. But sometimes those verses that give hope, they're the ones that get plucked out and used without the context. And, and we've talked before in this podcast a lot about context and how we read scripture. Any any thoughts on any of that? It's interesting, isn't it? That, that if, we were, if we were Jewish, we would really refer to Ezra. Ezra is really the first of the Pharisees. So Ezra is the, although he's associated with the, the rebuilding of the temple, his big move is the recovery of the textual tradition. Some people have written about the move from temple to text, and Ezra brings that out. And there are Jewish texts which, which look right back through the famous rabbis all the way back to Ezra. Ezra's the start of, in a sense, contemporary Judaism, which is based on the text. What's interesting is that I think it's a slightly controversial point, and I don't want to diminish it, but there is a, a strong link in some sections of our church uh, between uh, Christian spirituality and the success of Christian businesses. And uh, there are a number of leaders who have, who have emerged in the church who are also very successful in the world of business. And it's often the equation made that God has blessed them. And I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that. But if you're a Christian, Christian business man or woman, Nehemiah is your man. I remember being with a bunch of Christian uh, businessmen and say, Nehemiah is one of us. That's what they said. And I think that that soft spot for the successful Christian entrepreneur perhaps explains some of our soft spot for Nehemiah. Whereas for the in the Jewish tradition, um, where text is, is massive, 
um, Ezra is the person that you go to. Interesting, yeah, and I think it, it, it widens out to leadership as well. Often when we talk about leadership, and 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 it's understandable. And there's not anything wrong with it on one level. To go to a book like Nehemiah, you find quite clear strategies of how to how to be a good leader. Um, yeah, Jen, you look like you're going to say something. Yeah, a couple of things. Firstly, um, one of our few contributors from our listeners, William Wilson, <laughs> who is a, who's my minister in my home church, uh, we did a series on Ezra. Well, he, he he took us through Ezra. I think January to March, which was quite a, a a dark time for our nation, wasn't it? This year, where we were in very severe lockdown. It was winter. Things seemed pretty hopeless, and. Um, I actually spoke to William about doing this podcast on these books of the Bible, and he said, "But I, I did Ezra, and it wasn't until he said that I, re- I remembered." So I must have pushed that to the back of my mind, as well as being in the darkness of winter and the darkness of lockdown. But I think when I reread it, so that was encouraging that, that we did that, and I had to do a number of all age talks around that. So at the time, I did do all that kind of working out about how you tell this story as a as a story about who Ezra was, and I think when I reread it again this time. The thing that struck me was that the relationship with God just seems to be so key. It, it just keeps being referred to that the, the people, certain people's hearts were moved by God or um, they knew God was with them. It's repeated. So in a very difficult book, that that is running running through it. And it's not the people you'd always expect. It's not the, 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 so, the godly people, but people like Cyrus. Um, and again, it's interesting mm. you mentioned his mm. his benevolence. I don't know if you used that word, but I actually wrote that down when I was reading Ezra this week. He, he seems benevolent, and there's a compassion about him, and the, and the, it's you know to say that he, his heart was moved by God as much as Ezra's was. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I, I think that, that that actually leads us quite nicely to, to to the discussion about why we've chosen to do this now. And I mean, I'll, obviously, I've been we've, we've done this together. We've had a bit of a conversation around it, so I've, it's very much I've been part of this. But I, I am aware that at the moment, a lot of podcasts that I would subscribe to, they are they're talking about rebuilding, they're talking about reworking. And I suppose there's a little bit of me in the back of my head thinking, have we have we just jumped on a bandwagon here? Is it just quite trendy to do that, or is there something about the times we live in? And I'm thinking there about you know think about climate justice global conflict migration the pandemic which may well be the first of other pandemics mental health crisis that we're facing as as um, individuals and as a nation is there something about about this kind of post-exile literature that speaks very particularly to the the moment that we're in yeah i think so was there a a, a group of notes called the bible speaks today is that yeah, oh, yeah, they're commentaries. They're, they're, they're comment- yeah. Oh, yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, uh-huh. no, yeah. And yeah. I think that's, um, yeah, <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe I forgot. They were edited by John John Stott, weren't they? Um, and I think one of our, our, our sense, our calling in this podcast has been to sense where, where does the Bible speak today? And I think that would be one of the, the key things about the Bible society, isn't it? It's a, it's a text that, Let's go to the text and and find out how this speaks to today. And I I think yeah we've been asking the question what, what is this moment that we are in, and it is a moment of rebuilding after after the shattering of well there's two kind of shatterings I think we're dealing with. I think there is a immediate shattering that's happened through COVID, um, shattering in terms of potentially the lives of our young people the the. I'm very aware of how young people's mental health has really 
really suffered that that we have asked i mean this is a slightly extreme point but what our young people have done is remarkable in the last two years they have sacrificed their education or the quality of their educational experience they have sacrificed their their social lives um in order to protect above all the oldest demographics in our in our population and by and large have done that willingly and and graciously and 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 kindly and but there's been a huge toll on them um so there's a there's a shattering that's happened there's a shattering i think in our church lives, many of us in churches, because I think we've recognized that long-term trends which were happening, which were to do about pulling us apart and and distancing our community have accelerated. I was with a, a couple yesterday who in the 1960s were remembering that in their church, in a housing estate in Aberdeen, there were 1,250 members of the Sunday school. I mean, can you can you just imagine that? And that wasn't just a big church. That was that was a housing estate church, and all those trends have accelerated over COVID. So there is a shattering. And one of the things that that has been noted is that there is a parallel with exile. And um, Walter Brueggemann has said that that exiles have to do a thing; they have to grieve their loss and express their sadness. And we've 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 got to do that. We can't just go on. And he says that the greatest threat in exile is the power of despair. And that what we do in these texts is we recover hope. But what we don't do is we don't say we're going to get back to David. What happens after these texts is different. We we know the weeping in the morning of the people who saw the second temple. And remember that the first one feel, felt so great. So there seems to me that there is something in these texts which articulates a hope and spending time with them will allow that, that hope to grow and to find a voice and to find, I think, some specificity. It isn't just be hopeful. Hope in these places means the return to home. It means the reorganization of the land. It means the rebuilding of walls. It means the rebuilding of temple. And it means the recovery of text, which turns out, after all, to be the most fertile tradition that grows out of all of these years. the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? I forget you, Jerusalem. May my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, 
happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. I think you've summed that up really well, Neil. I think as well, you t- correct me if I'm wrong, but this this generation that returns in these books are a generation who haven't known, who, who didn't know before Bab- Babylon. They, d- they didn't yeah. know before when they were in Jerusalem. So although they're still gods worshipping, people who worship God, they don't remember how it was. But the core things remain the same. And and what struck me at the start of Ezra, they, they worship as soon as they arrive, they don't they don't wait to rebuild the temple. And I and I was thinking about us as a people in Scotland, a church people, that the worship didn't stop. We didn't stop being the church. Mm-hmm. But my fear is that as we emerge, meet together again, we forget that that's the important thing. Now maybe that's just because we've not got a very good understanding of what church is anyway. So we try we try and become what we were rather than saying this is what church is and and this is what we kept doing even when we had to be physically apart and and therefore what are we now what is, what does that look like now as we rebuild so we're not rebuilding just as it was just as you said about the temple it looked different and interesting the critics were criticizing that all oh, the the temple doesn't look the way it used to look and we're not coping with that so it's it, there's lots of challenges that lie ahead. But there's also le- there is leadership within all this. Significant people who say we're going to do this, and they and they encourage other people, and they verbalise that. And I think there is a place for for us to for people within church to say this is what we're going to do, and this is why we're going to do it eh, to move us all along to whatever whatever that hope might look like, and and being together in a when I say a new way, I don't mean that we stop being who we are because we're still God's people. But it, it may not. It, it won't look like what it looked like in the past. I mean, I some was. It, I don't know what it was. I had this conversation, but somebody said, "No, the church in in the UK might end in in the next ten years." But that isn't really the right statement. This the statement. It may not look. What the church may not look like what mm-hmm. we've always known it to be. That the promise is there that God's God's people will keep on going. But it might not look what it looked like in the past. So there are things that 21st century disciples can learn from <laughs> post-exile, pre, uh, pre-Christ people of God. Yeah, and, and Fiona, I think that's an interesting thing because I think the learning happens not in actual, a factual statement. We go to this book and we read verse, yeah. I don't know, verse Jeremiah 29, you know, I have plans for you. Mm-hmm. And, and we go, oh, look, there's the fact, we're fine. Yeah. Rather, I think it's, something happens to us when we spend time with the text yeah. that happens at a deeper level. I think that's the learning. Yeah. And, yeah. and in the text, I don't know how many times it happened because I didn't keep a record of it. It's not really how I read, but there was weeping and rejoicing at the same mm. time. Mm-hmm. It, it, it happened. I, I, maybe As we talk more over the coming weeks, maybe we'll notice how often that happened. Mm-hmm. 
So there was rejoicing because they were having the festivals again and, and those festivals just sounded great. You know, they just sounded full of life and joy and feasting. and But yet there was also tears. Yes. Uh, tears for what had been and the people they'd lost and, and the, all that had gone. And, and I think that's true for us as well. And I've heard people say, oh, we need... You know, some people, we need to rejoice, we need to be happy being back together, but then we also need to mourn, don't we, mm-hmm. for what was. Lovely. And that's obviously where Sam 137 fits with um, with that discussion and the, and the starting point, I suppose, that, that, that where we've come from in terms of, as a podcast, but also where we've come from in, in terms of lament and lamenting in order to, um, to have the full reality of that celebration and hope and joy that comes. Uh, we're going to round off, but what uh, other any other key themes that we'll find? I think for me, and maybe you won't be surprised at this, that there is a sense of all God's people together so often in these books. Children are mentioned, women are mentioned, uh, those who could understand were there. They're not being uh, siphoned off into age groups, but everybody's experiencing that. And I'm so glad you mentioned, Neil, that the impact on young people in our nation through COVID and it makes it even more important that we include our young people with older people in what we're rebuilding that we, we don't just go back to like you, you you go to your youth group or you go to your children's group but that, that they are we are the church together as we work out what that means because that that was significant then and there's a beautiful verse one of the beautiful verses i mentioned um is it in zephaniah is that the right book um with zechariah zechariah uh, <laughs> who is zephaniah anyway um he's a different prophet <laughs> where the where they are um it says the old you can correct me if this is wrong but the old people are sitting in the market square leaning on their sticks and the children are playing mm. i would like to take that vision into our future for the church yeah. beautiful that's that's um a chapter that was really significant in me moving from Edinburgh to Glasgow. That's a whole other oh, thing. Really? Yeah, this that yeah, the, and ten ten men will grasp the hem yes. of the man. Yeah, interesting. Take take me to your God. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, and other themes. Um, I I think uh, there are a lot of false starts that go on in these mm-hmm. uh, texts, and we're going to see those. I think we need to note time. You know, you can have a verse that covers fifty eight years. And here we are going, we've been out of lockdown since June. We need to work out what we're going to do. <laughs> it takes time. <laughs> um, the role of leadership, we've already touched on that. The role of, well, initially on the face of it, it seems like strong male leaders. Um, we're maybe going to problematize that. Um, the whole thing about what does it mean to have a future? And I think the accommodations that people make with empire are quite interesting in all of this. So um, these are going to be some of the themes and, and there are going to be bits of these books we don't like, things that happen in the narrative that we go, oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, lots to look forward to over the coming weeks. Um, so in the meantime, thank you very much. I won't ask you for your uh, your takeaways from today because... My, my, I'll tell you oh, what, got I, I've got, got a takeaway. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a takeaway. Go, give us your takeaway. My takeaway is I love the fact that Chen had done a series on Ezra, including ones in which she'd done all these talks. He completely forgot about it. <laughs> it did feel as though it, it reached a new level. Yeah, it was preached on... Oh yeah, and actually I was part of that process. <laughs> I like the way Jen kept going back to Zephaniah. I feel we're, we're picking on you, Jen, though. It's not fair. It's not fair. 
<laughs> Zephaniah must roll off the tongue easier. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have any takeaways, Jen? I mean, you're you're very welcome to. I really what I just I said about the all ages together intergenerational yeah. stuff, but. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you both very much. I look forward to speaking next time. Now, next time, we are going to have Jen's Gems, by the way, because obviously we don't want to lose that segment. But next time, just for people who are reading ahead, we're going to we're going to focus on Ezra and we're going to look at Ezra chapters one to six. So that's up to that point, Neil, isn't it, where you talked about that, that yeah. one verse that covers the, the yeah. 56 years. Um, so yeah, Ezra one to six for next time. But in the meantime, Jen, what's your gem? I'm hesitating because I'm going to talk about being completely honest when we're engaging with the Bible with young people. And I'm sure you've picked up from this podcast uh, that I really don't have a problem with that. I'm generally quite honest. And uh, and there is another word um, that is well used, uh, being authentic. Now, it's interesting that research has been done with Gen Z, which is the newest age group that's been researched. So they're from... 1997 to oh, 2012 that's when they were born so they, they they range from 6 to about 24 and one of the characteristics of Gen Z is that they they really want authenticity they want people to be real and to share their real stories um and I, I want to give a wee shout out to someone for this um and Mel Lacey was speaking at our um Kirk session last night um, and Mel works for an organisation. I'm struggle, struggling to remember her organisation or Growing Young Disciples. Anyway, she was speaking to us about how we can help support young people uh, walk closer to Jesus and, and help all of us at the same time. Uh, but she was talking about Gen Z and this need for authenticity. So I want to mention her because that's partly why it's in my mind. Um, so we, we need to be authentic when we're reading the Bible with young people and helping them explore it. And that... That involves having the conversations that we've just had, like me saying, oh, I thought Zephaniah was Zechariah and I get confused and I, and I don't I don't know where these books fit in. Not in a false way, if that isn't true for you, but being honest that we struggle with these things and that can be very practically worked out. So when you sit down with the Bible with young people, you know, don't don't just flick to the book that you you know where it is. Say, though, there is a contents page and we can find them there. Don't, don't put a false kind of confidence in reading the Bible that we don't actually have. And sometimes I've watched uh, youth workers over the years engage with young people and they're playing games with them and they're having conversation and they're all, they're brilliant. They're so much fun and they know how to listen to young people and they pay attention to each individual young person. And then they pick up the Bible and somehow their personality kind of drains out of them and they have to be very serious and, um, I don't know, religious or something. So please keep keep who you are Um as you read the Bible with young people and be willing to have a laugh when you make mistakes or you don't understand things and point out the some of the ridiculousness that we, we find in the Bible and, and work through that together. So be authentic and real and honest. That's my Jen's gem. Thank you very much indeed. That's brilliant. That's great. Uh, one last question before we finish. Any any other recommended reading that either of you have for people who are thinking about this stuff? Did we mention the Bible Project videos? I, mean, I know we've mentioned them before, but... We did. As yes. always useful. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm I'm I've been jotting around the internet using my commentary. I'm I'm gonna try and get a hold of Colin Sinclair's. I've been reading Walter Brueggemann Cadences of Home, which is about exile, but it's quite dense. Uh, it's not a laugh. <laughs> but it's authentic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good. It's good. To, it's good to offer a range, though, isn't it? Because people, people will have, you know, some people will be coming at this really fresh. Other people, um, you know, mm -hmm. the likes of William Wilson, who is 
crying in a study at the moment because Jen's not remembered his series of sermons on Ezra. William, William you know, Wizard, he, who has been on Wittertainment Clergy Corner three times as well. I mean, he's a friend of this podcast yeah. and a friend of that one. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure William could recommend some books for Ezra. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, <laughs> William, yeah. what do you recommend? That's right. What do you recommend? Fire in your recommendations to us and you can do that at, I'm going to try to remember the, the email address, it's outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org. So if you have suggestions of, of helpful resources, then fire them in. So next time, Ezra 1 to 6, you can join us then. And in the meantime, don't forget, you can get in touch with us um, either on that email address or via SBS website. Neil, Jen, thank you both very much. I'm very much looking forward to this journey of discovery. And reminder that there's a future. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to <laughs> That's my authentic response. Uh, Lovely. See you both next time. Bye. Bye.